This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today we're really excited to be going back to the Georgian era um, and we're specifically looking at Jane Austen. So our special guest today is Dr. Rita J. Dashwood, who's an expert in Jane Austen and wider 18th and 19th century literature and legacies. She is a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Liverpool and has recently published her first book, Women and Property Ownership in Jane Austen. Hi, Rita. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the podcast. And today I'm joined in co-hosting duties by Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? This is, what, the first one we've done together where it's just you and me? I think it is, yeah. So that's a good occasion. Now, I know yeah. you have a bit of a confession, don't you, about you and Jane Austen? <laughs> um, more the idea of 19th century literature than how I'm not really a fan. But <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> well, well Rita, yeah, Rita and I have decided that we're going to try and turn you into a Janeite by the end of the episode today. Yeah, Chris will be reading Pride and Prejudice by the end of this, no doubt. Yes. (laughs) So we're going to start, um, before turning to Jane Austen, Rita, um, I wonder if you could share with us um, the context of property-owning women in Georgian England. Sure. Um, I think that one of the most common misconceptions is that um, is that women couldn't own property at all. So that's the kind of thing that whenever my students want to write about women, women and property in this period, I always warn them about. It's not as simple as saying that no women could own property whatsoever. Um, so for single women, it was not so bad. So single women could own property. Uh, for example, if you only had sisters and if you were, you were inheriting from your parents, then the inheritance would be split evenly. So, you know, so far, so good. Um, but then it gets complicated once we get the law of primogeniture. So according to that, all of the property goes to the oldest brother to the detriment of everyone else in the family. Um, and this was actually not that common in this period. This was very much an, an English thing. So um, in other countries, for example, Portugal, where I come from, it would have been split evenly uh, by every single child. Um, so this was, you know, a, a kind of different system than in other places in Europe. Um, where it got really bad was for married women. So married women uh, generally couldn't own property. So according to common law, any property that they had would belong to the husband. So they wouldn't uh, be entitled to to the management of any of it unless 
and this is an important unless unless it was protected by a trust. So if you had a very careful father who was wealthy enough to set up a trust, then there was the possibility that that property would have been protected even after marriage. Um, and this would not change until the Married Women's Property Act of 1882. So it would actually take quite a long time um, for married women uh, to be able to have rights over their uh, their property. Um, but if you want to think about, you know, 18th century versus today, a very depressing fact that some historians on women and property have pointed out is that actually the rates for female ownership today in the developing world are actually very similar to the ones that we had in the 18th century. So in many ways, things sadly haven't changed that much. I mean, Beth tells me that in Austin's works that she features quite a few uh, secondary female characters who do own property, including in Pride and Prejudice, you've got Lady Catherine and Sanderton's Lady Denham, both of whom are widows, but they're not portrayed in particularly favourable light. Can you tell us about their portrayals? Yeah, uh, so that is one of the one of the things I encountered as I as I was writing my book was realizing that you do have these women who own a lot of property in Jane Austen but they are all terrible. So, and I was really struggling to, to make sense of this, you know, how can someone like Jane Austen, who the way I see it is saying so many empowering things about women in property, then whenever she does portray a woman having this kind of power and wealth, you know, she makes a mess of it. Like she's terrible at managing it. Um, so Lady Catherine is probably the best example. So Lady Catherine is a great parody of male paternalism. So the way that she goes um, to the cottages uh, of her tenants and basically tells them to stop being too poor or too unhappy, um, you know, but she's not actually doing anything to help them. She has the money and the power, but she um, she doesn't know how to use it, basically. Uh, and she's, uh, you know, a hilarious character in many ways because she always talks about the things that she could do and the things that she would do. Um, but really, she's just managing the estate the way that her husband did. She's not trying to innovate in any way. So you can see that she's someone that's really lacking in in many, many ways, much as she brags about herself all the time. Um, then we have... Um, a sinister element as well that all these women share. So Lady Catherine, Mrs. Ferris in Sensibility is another one and Lady Denham in Sanditon. Um, so these women don't care about managing their property. So they think of it in only one sense, which is something to leverage against their children. So they use it in order to try to convince their children to marry whoever they want them to marry. Um, and so property in this sense isn't something that they use to make people's lives better. It's something that they use to manipulate others. So, um, so far, you know, so far, not that great. All these women just do whatever their husbands did. Uh, they try to manipulate other people. This is not exactly a, you know, an amazing, empowering relationship to property. So what was Jane Austen doing here? Um, and what you realize uh, when you look at the portrayals of these women is that they really lack a good education. So they were clearly raised for show. Uh, and this is something that, um, you know, female writers from 
all across, um, you know, different political inclinations would have agreed with. So you have Mary Wollstonecraft, Hannah Moore, so uh, female authors who would have disagreed in many ways, but not with this, which is the idea that women were being raised badly. Women were being raised to get husbands, to look pretty, uh, to show off their piano playing skills and not much beyond that. And you really see this with these women. So they suddenly find themselves in a position of great power, great responsibility, and they have no idea what to do with it because they just weren't raised that way. So this is something that I think as Jane Jane Austen is pointing out with these women, which is, yeah, you're setting women up for failure, basically. Um, As you say in Lady Catherine, um, you know, some of them are like such a, the iconic characters that we really, you know, remember from the adaptations, like, you know, mm-hmm. Judy Dench as Lady Catherine. Oh, like, so good. <laughs> so good. But, they, but they aren't nice. They aren't good people. <laughs> no, and oh, Judy Dench is so good. It's, she's so good in this, how she is, she really portrays how, high and mighty she thinks she is but you know you, you look a little closer and there's she's very superficial in terms yeah. of her abilities and her knowledge and yeah she does it so well <laughs> and um, also kind of not really coming across that well are the characters who you interestingly refer to as the surrogate manager in your book so the female characters who kind of have aspirations to a particular property of their own and kind of try and you know, weasel their way in there a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> could, you, could you tell us a little bit more about, um, for example, Mrs. Clay and Persuasion um, and Mrs. Norris in Mansfield Park and kind of what Austin's trying to tell us about kind of their relationships with property? Oh, I had I had so much fun thinking about this and, and, and writing this chapter of the book because I think for so long, I really, I, I really thought that as an academic, I had to make Austin sound very simple. You know, every single thing had to be very simple. So if Austin has, you know, a character who's clearly horrible, like Mrs. Norris, she's going to stay horrible until the end and she's going to get punished by the end of this. But this is not how Jane Austen writes. It's so much more complex than this. And, um, and I started seeing these characters completely differently. So Mrs. Norris, um, basically, you know, had to see a sister get married to a much wealthier man than she. So she is, you know, green with jealousy, uh, that she didn't get the kind of lifestyle that her sister did. And so she tries to get as much of it as she possibly can. So she has accepted that she can't marry as wealthy a man. But instead, she infiltrates herself into her sister's life. And because Lady Bertram cares more about having a nap than, you know, actually doing anything that she is meant to do as the manager of an estate, um, she makes it very easy for Mrs. Norris to do this. So she is the one who goes uh, with her nieces to balls. She is the one who tries to mar- to uh, manage their marriages. Um, and so she kind of takes over the estate, especially when Sir Thomas, the actual owner, isn't there to do anything about it. She's the one managing the servants. She's the one telling everyone what to do. Um, and with Mrs. Norris, it's really difficult to defend this at this point because we know that she has quite a lot of money. So she has 600, uh, uh, 600 pounds a year, which for someone who is living by herself doesn't have anyone to support. This is a, a pretty decent, you know, amount of money. Um, 
So it's pretty difficult to, to sympathize with her at this point. Uh, Mrs. Clay is, is a little different. So Mrs. Clay is a widowed mother. So she's, uh, so she is a widow with children who is now back to living in her father's house. She has no privacy, no independence whatsoever, zero money of her own. And so you feel for her. So when she tries to infiltrate into the Elliot family and is clearly trying to marry Sir Elliot and trying to take the place of manager, of his household that is currently held by his daughter, you, it's not like you think that she's a great person, but it's, you know, it's, you, you can't judge her that much because she is doing what she's doing, you know, out of, um, you know, a survival instinct. Uh, so they both do this. So they both infiltrate this house. And because the person who should have been the manager has kind of given up her role, can't be bothered. Um, it's only too easy for them to do this. But what I love about this, these, these two characters, um, is that everyone spends the entire novel thinking that they are very calculating, very cold. And then in the end, they completely prove them wrong. So what I love about Mrs. Norris, and this is a weird sentence to say as a Jane Austen fan, because she is a villain, a horrible villain in many ways, um, is that she is actually the best person out of everyone in Mansfield Park. And she reveals this at the end. So when Mariah um, basically uh, takes off with another man, even though she's she's married and the entire family decides that they don't want to be associated with her. She is a black stain on the family. She will never enter their house ever again. Mrs. Norris is the one who stands up for her and who goes and lives in the middle of nowhere with her because no one else will. Um, and this coming from someone who was trying to get that really high position in society, who wanted to go to balls and to have this really active social life, to suddenly give that all up for a niece that Jane Austen tells us doesn't even like her. This is, you know, this is not something that anyone would do. Certainly no one else in Mansfield Park. So I, I think that's a pretty, a pretty interesting portrayal. And same with Mrs. Clay. Everyone thinks, oh, she's this horrible, cold, calculating woman who is trying to get Mr. Um, Sir Elliot to marry her. Um, and then at the end, she falls in love with Mr. Elliot and runs away with him. So, you know, they, they, I, I, I really like what Austin is doing here. And it's basically showing that people are more complex than that. People aren't just black and white. Yeah, it's very easy for, for writers to have cardboard characters that you can this character represents this and this, and then they, they don't deviate. So it's good to have that kind of evolution. And we get we get a contrast in this though with Austin's single heroines, who are apparently much more likable. They have a they have a variety of emotional connections and responses to property, which I think we're going to come to later. But firstly, we know that Austin herself experienced periods of life where she didn't have a permanent residence to call her home. Can you tell us about this and how it may have inspired particular events in her novels? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, she she didn't have a particularly easy life. Uh, so she didn't have a very stable, um, a very stable existence, shall we say? Um, but I think I think the key expression to use with Jane Austen is comparative poverty. So it's not as simple as saying that Jane Austen was poor. You know, she wasn't by any means. Um, but it's the comparative side of it. So she would have to see someone like her brother Edward inherit this massive estate. Um, and all they could get from him was this, you know, this, this cottage, 
where she would live with her mother and um and her sister and their friend so it must have been to a certain extent difficult for her to see her brothers get all these privileges uh, that she would never be able to access at the same time this was very much you know the time in which she was living as well and i think one of the particular phases that must have been really difficult for her and i think um austin biographers um usually agree with this is her father's retirement so how her father decided to retire from being a clergyman and uh this wasn't a decision um th- that as far as we know she was ever part of so she just gets home one day and they tell her that they're leaving the their childhood home so the home in which she was born and the only home that he that she had really known so far um and not only that but then the person who takes over is her oldest brother James who besides being a terrible poet if you ever read his poetry oh my god it's you know it's so bad and apparently he thought he was very good and it's hilarious um it doesn't sound like he was the nicest out of her brothers and it doesn't sound like he was married to the nicest wom- woman either and so not only is she losing her childhood home but she kind of has to see her brother and this not very nice wife take over it um and she doesn't have a say in any of this so i think in this sense um it could have inspired her a little bit in um in sense and sensibility so when the dashwood women um have to leave nolan park and they have to move to a cottage um you know to us having to move to a cottage such as the one in in Shorten doesn't really seem like that much of a punishment um but for her it must have been hard leaving you know leaving her childhood home and having to give it up um and then i think that uh, her portrayal of bath really evolves throughout her novels so in northanger abbey you know it's this very exciting place that then you know is revealed to have a murky side to it but it's still you know exciting but in persuasion at this point Jane Austen seems to you know have have hated uh Bath um and understandably because this is where they moved to after they left her childhood home and this is where her father died um and so I think that dislike and that tiredness with Bath really comes through in persuasion um and then personally my favorite is um is uh Fanny's portrayal of arriving at Mansfield Park and seeing this house that is so grand and that she gets to stay in but she's not really part of it so she's never going to inherit it uh she's not really you know part of the family in some ways um and i always think about uh this house that i used to live really close to uh, Stanley Abbey So this is an estate that Jane Austen visited I think it was for 2 weeks with her mother and her sister Cassandra um and this is when two of her male family members were fighting over it and one of them decides that if he has a good chance of inheriting it he's just going to go there so he takes the you know he takes uh the Austen women and uh Jane Austen gets to spend a little bit of time in this house that she's never going to 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 inherit she's never going to really live in um and that must have been a weird experience how she's this kind of pawn in this fight for this house when she really is not a part of it um and yeah and then i think in the end um you know chorton house was uh 
was probably one of the best parts of her life when she finally had that stability of being able to to stay in a place for some time um and you know the comparative poverty still still applies here it's not nearly as nice as her brother's much grander house uh just down the road but you know it would have given her the stability to edit her novels and to finally publish them absolutely and with you mentioning james i mean the first thing that popped into my head was clearly the the kind of talent gene didn't run through the whole family <laughs> yeah oh my god it was yeah, I, I I only recently read his poetry, and I don't consider myself necessarily a, the biggest expert in poetry. But my God, I think anyone can tell that that's really bad. <laughs> and we'll have to encourage um encourage our listeners to um to look up that if they um if they want some amusement. <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, with us talking about Jane and the kind of sometimes peripatetic lifestyle that she had due due to those factors outside of her control. Um, you know, disposition is a theme which really runs through um, some of her novels. Um, and as you mentioned, sense sensibility, the Dashwood women are forced to leave Norland Park, where they've been living for an unspecified number of years, but clearly have a connection to. And they experience mixed emotions, you could say, um, upon moving into their new property, Barton Cottage. Could you tell us a little bit about this and, and how those emotions, but also how the Dashwood women tried to make the cottage a home? Yeah, that is, um, that, that episode has one of my favorite expressions that Jane Austen ever wrote, which is to form themselves a home. I think that's such a beautiful expression. Um, so again, that was one of the times where I had to confront the expectations I had for Jane Austen. So, um, so I very much, you know, uh, reread this scene expecting that it was just going to be about sadness, you know, and about everything that they had lost and how unhappy they were with Barton Cottage. And then when I read it again, there was a completely different, um, different thing going on. Yes, there was sadness, but there was also hope, hope for the future. Um, and there was displacement, but also this really, um, desire to make something out of this, to make the best out of this situation. Um, so yes, you know, when they, when they arrive at, at Barton, they compare it to Nolan, they can't help it. And, uh, and Jane Austen describes them as crying. So there is a level of disappointment that, you know, they will never live somewhere like that. Um, again, unless they marry. Um, but then I, what I think is really beautiful about that scene is that they accept it for what it is. So at some point they decide that they could, keep comparing it to Nolan forever, but this is not what's going to make them happy. And so they, as as Austin says, form themselves a home. And so they create their own space. They take over the house. Um, and I think this is amazing, I guess, coming from generation rents. So coming from someone who has never owned the house in which she lived, I think this is really empowering how you can um, act as if a house is your own and make it your own. Um, and so that scene is really beautiful. Marianne takes out her piano, Eleanor takes out her drawings. And so they start decorating the house with the objects that are theirs that their brother couldn't take away from, from them. And we know that he got pretty much everything that was in their previous house. And so they are clinging on to the few things that he could never take away from them. And they decorate the house like this. And I feel like this is such a relatable moment. So I remember um, at university, you know, myself and all my friends who were moving from a foreign country, who were moving from abroad, that's the first thing we did once we arrived at our very 
boring, barren student rooms. It would be to decorate it with our family pictures, it, with um, decorative objects that our parents had given us, anything that was meaningful to us to indicate this is now my own. Um, and so, yeah, I absolutely love that. Love that episode in the novel. I think I think it's it portrays something so important and it portrays that hope. You know, that even though patriarchy is putting women in a terrible position, these women have been kicked out of their house. Um, the inheritance that should have been theirs really has gone to a toddler, you know, their nephew, who is already incredibly wealthy and doesn't really need any more money. It's incredibly unfair, but also it's empowering to think of how you can resist it. And uh, and that scene ends up being really beautiful. The, their neighbors welcome them. They bring them presents of food. Um, and so there is the indication that, you know, it's not so bad. It's going to be okay. And so I, I really love that moment in the novel. I completely agree that when, when I had to move out from home, first thing I did was put the bookshelf up, put, start putting the books out. Then now I'm renting. This is, this is my I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But it's not just about the physical possessions as such. You mentioned in your book about in persuasion and Elliot discusses the concept of it. It's not so much the place, but it's with the people that you're with. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I love that about persuasion because, again, I find that so relatable how so many times it's it's not about the place itself, but it's about the people that you have there. Um, so persuasion is the best example of this. I think it's one of those novels where it's frustrating because it seems like Austin was doing something different and we'll never find out, you know, what would have happened next, but she seems to have moved away from home as a place to home as a group of people. Um, and so, uh, the perfect example of this is, um, Anne arriving at the Musgrove's house. Um, so, you know, we know that her family is, you know, pretty terrible. Her father has squandered the family inheritance. They had to leave their family home. Um, and he hasn't learned anything from it. Uh, she is pretty badly treated by her family. They don't really care, uh, about her or about what she thinks and how she feels. And so suddenly she finds herself with this group of people. And it's not about the house at all because she looks around the house and she goes, Ooh, that decoration is over the top. Oh, I would not have decorated it like that. So it's not that she thinks, wow, this is, you know, this is the, the house is perfect exactly as I would have, as I would have done it. Um, and it's also not about 
um, it being particularly refined because she describes a dinner that they're having together and the children are running around and people are trying to talk to each other, but over the noise, they can barely hear each other. Um, but it's, it's warm and it's kind and people care about her and how she's doing and she feels like she really belongs with them. And so that's such a wonderful moment where you can see that she really feels at home in a way that she hasn't in a very long time. Um, and there's also the element of, of profession in this, I think. So, uh, she's coming from her father's family and who have squandered money away. Uh, her father is always talking about, oh, how young he looks for his age. And she's always like, yeah, because you never had to do a day's work in your life. So this idea <laughs> that he never had to do anything useful um, versus these people who are a Navy family. Um, and she's very much trying to marry someone uh, who is in the Navy. So there's also this identification with this life of usefulness versus this life of you know, pointless spending. Um, and you can see that she really identifies with these people's values. And so I, I, I just love this bit. I think it's such a, the family you choose kind of moment. Um, and that so many times it's really not about where they are. It's about the kind of people they are and how you feel when you're around them. And that's a really lovely sentiment, isn't it? And as you say, with Anne's family, there's just such a lack of intimacy there. Like her father mm-hmm. and her older sister just don't really seem to, you know, really care about her that much. Or yeah. Elizabeth, her older sister, you know, Mrs. Clay becomes her big companion. And Anne's thinking like, you know, I could accompany you to these kind of events. Yeah. Things, but yeah, <laughs> they're just, yeah, it's like she's just there, but not there in the house with them. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like she's always, um, you know, she's always out, outside of it. She's always in the margins. Whereas, you know, even though this scene in the Musgrove's house, you know, it's loud and, and there's a lot going on. She's part of it. Like you feel like she's not just observing it from the outside. She's actually within this atmosphere and it feels really warm and, and really nice. Definitely. And then moving to some different kind of emotions, um, a different way, looking at the properties. Um, as you know, in your book, um, country house tourism became very popular and visitors could experience the feeling of living in these properties through their guidebooks and kind of looking through the rooms and imagining themselves um, living there and what they would do with the space as then as well as then visiting themselves experience this feeling but of a particularly charged nature when they tour the properties of prospective suitors so we wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how Austin portrays the experiences of Catherine Morland in Northanger Abbey and Marianne Dashwood in Sense and Sensibility. Yeah thank you that's a great question um I think that's a very interesting aspect and, and, and one of the things I was, I was asked early on when I started writing my chapter about this was, well, what's the difference then? Because, you know, people would have had access to these houses. They could have visited them. They could have seen the things that Catherine and Marianne were seeing. So, you know, so what makes them different? What makes this moment so charged? Um, and yeah, tourists, um, would have had, a pretty interesting reaction to houses. So, so if you look at uh, people's letters as they describe their experience of this, you know, many of them would have gone around and been like, I would have changed that. I would not have the library like this. And that's really interesting. They are imagining themselves as owners and imagining what they would have done. 
um, you know, which you do. Like when I went, I, I was just in Winchester Mystery House in California. And I was like, I would absolutely keep that. Yes, this is where I would put my books. You know, it's just what you do. Um, but I guess the difference is that tourists would not have had a personal relationship to it. So they would have been visiting it um, to see what kind of stuff that people had. So they would have been looking for signs of wealth. You know, where's the uh, the Turner painting, you know, where's the really famous paintings, where, where is it, um, where do you have the expensive furniture, for example. Um, so the big difference between what tourists are doing and what these women are doing is the sexual undertone, because this isn't just about, would you live here? This is, would you be this man's wife? And that, of course, you know, completely changes things and completely changes the way that you're thinking about these houses. Um, and Catherine actually has both. So Catherine in, in Novanga, in the novel Novanga Abbey, um, towards the house, she acts like a tourist, towards the house, she acts as prospective, uh, prospective wife. So when she visits Novanga Abbey, um, the general, Henry, uh, Henry Tilney's father is dropping all these hints, you know, wouldn't you like to marry my son? You know, you, he is, he is being very obvious about this. Um, but Catherine isn't really thinking about it because she is thinking of the house as the general's house, not Henry's. And so when she's around Novanga Abbey, she's just thinking, what looks like something I've read in a Gothic novel? And, um, and as we all know, she's very disappointed. The house is too modern. It doesn't fit her expectations of cobwebs hanging from the ceiling and, and everything like that. Um, but so, so, you know, she's, calm and serene as she's going through this store and then this completely changes when she goes to Henry's house and again it's not about the house because she enters this room that's completely barren and she's like oh my god this is the best room I have ever seen ever it's amazing and then um you know he just started growing his garden so all the bushes all the trees are are very small but she's like this is the best you know the best garden I've ever seen she is so excited and again this is not about the house it's she loves the house because she loves Henry um and and in this scene she blushes so she blushes like so much as she's going around the house because suddenly that kind of sexual undertone kicks in she is thinking would I live here as this man's wife and that completely changes things um Marianne has so for Catherine it ends it ends well uh Marianne has the sad side of this it's the risks that you take when you start thinking of yourself as a, as the owner of a house before you know you are officially married uh to a man so Marianne pretty much gets tricked so she she gets tricked into imagining a life that she can't have um and that Willoughby uh never never intended for her to have so Marianne starts thinking about this life uh, and when Elena asks her how much money would be needed to support that, she's like, oh, you know, just 2000 a year. Well, we know that Willoughby has 600. So, you know, she is dreaming very, you know, very, <laughs> very differently from what the reality could actually be. Um, and this was actually the scene where she is then, um, is then looking out and she thinks she can see his house, but it's too far away, which in itself is really symbolic. Um, this is what gave me the idea for the book. So, uh, so when I was actually watching the Emma Thompson adaptation and that's what got me thinking because 
Well, technically, you know, the law would say that she didn't lose anything. You know, this house would have never been hers. She was never married to this man. Then why is she experiencing grief? Because grief implies that something has been lost. Um, and so that's what um, started me thinking about about it, how you can really establish feelings ownership, uh, feelings of ownership towards a place that you know is 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 not your own and to start thinking of yourself as owner when you know nothing has happened yet and poor marianne she gets tricked into doing that like captain america i get <laughs> the reference in this question because my ex-wife had a, a huge obsession with um colin firth so i know oh, who these people are as we elizabeth did. bennett um she bought the dvd and the amount of times we had to watch that repeat scene where we're coming out the lake i was like oh come it, on it, <laughs> it's the only way to do it yeah <laughs> When Elizabeth Bennet does go to Mr. Darcy's property of Pemberley, Austin inverts the trope of the country gentleman surveying his landscape and surveying society as he sees it. And Elizabeth actually has these capabilities. She says something along the lines of, to be mistress of Pemberley might be something. Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, that that is my favourite bit in anything that anyone has ever written <laughs> it's that it's that bit uh where where elizabeth is going around pemberley uh even though jane austen doesn't have the wet t-shirt scene you know and the book is all the poorer for it but um i i love that and i was i was in a supervision uh with one of my supervisors david taylor as we were thinking about this and when and and when we both realized what jane austen was doing here we were so excited so we were just properly uh like so happy that we that we had realized this um but this is something that you know you it's it's difficult to explain if you don't know the context so if you don't know the the context of the period uh this scene would go right through your head you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily understand what austin is doing so um in this period there was the concept of society as landscape so this idea um that only the landed gentleman so so someone who doesn't have a job doesn't have a a business to manage for example um that he is the only person who can truly be selfless in society uh so because he doesn't have to fight for the interests of his business um he's going to fight for the interests of all of society and he's going to know what's best for everyone and this was usually represented um, especially in, you know, in paintings and poetry with this scene of that gentleman standing on top of a hill and he's looking out into a landscape and he can visualize it in its entirety and he's standing outside of it. So he's not part of it. He can see it from the outside. Um, and you find this in, in many places. You find this in Paradise Lost, for example. So Adam, um, is taken to a top of a high eminence and he is shown the future of humanity. Uh, and it's really, uh, significant that Eve is put to sleep as this happens. So Eve is not allowed, uh, this view of humanity. Only Adam, the man is. Um, and what's amazing about Pride and Prejudice, and I think by far the most, I would say the most radical aspect of anything Jane Austen ever wrote was to put Elizabeth in that position. So when Elizabeth goes to Pemberley, Austen describes her as surveying the landscape in its entirety. And she makes it very clear that she's not just thinking about how pretty it is or how wonderful it would be to be able to walk around these grounds. No, she's thinking of this as a profession. So what would it be like to be 
the wife of a gentleman. And so she's thinking about the responsibilities and the power that she would have as part of this position. And at some point she, she is, is really having a moment where she's thinking, my God, the, the amount of good that this man can do with his money, the amount of people that are dependent on him, the, the, the lives that he can influence. And she's thinking very much of herself in that picture, the, the, the difference that I can make in this position. And so she is very much, um, thinking from that position of outside of the landscape of selflessness, you know, how can I, how can I make people's lives better as part of this position? And so I think that's just such a beautiful moment because Elizabeth lacks everything that people would have said was necessary for you to be able to do that. She's not an aristocrat. She's not a man. Um, and she doesn't own property. And yet Jane Austen places her in that position. So I think that's, um, in many ways, a subtle way of doing it if you don't know the context, but a really wonderful way of see, of, of Jane Austen to say women have the ability to be great owners of, pro of property. As long as they are given the chance, they definitely have the ability to do it. Um, so I just, I love that moment in the novel. I love it so much. It's a wonderful moment. And, and we can't round off the podcast without mentioning Austen period drama again. Um, which of course had it, <laughs> which of course has its own intriguing relationship to property. Um, and, um, obviously real country house estates feature prominently in the cinema and television adaptations and market themselves to Austin fans. So for example, on the National Trust website, you know, it mentions Lime Park is famous for its role as Pemberley in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice BBC series, um, with the aforementioned Colin Firth Lake scene. <laughs> so Rita, what are your thoughts on um, how the feelings of ownership between Austen's female characters and property from the novels are actually represented in the period drama? Oh, I love the adaptations. And that, and that mention of Lime Park reminds me that one of the things that uh, the guides get asked a lot is the direction to the lake, to the famous lake, which is apparently quite difficult to find, which explains why I couldn't find it the last time I was there. So that's something for the next visit. Uh, I mean, I think the, the common criticism that adaptations usually get when it comes to the way they portray, uh, Austin's houses is that they're too exaggerated. So, um, so Pemberley is, is way grander than Darcy would have been able to afford, um, and everything like that. But I think that this ends up being a necessary thing in order to really emphasize to the public the notion of comparative poverty, because the idea of how many of it for women? So the Dashwood women moving to this cottage that to us is like, you know, goals, you know, living, living in something that looks like Barton Cottage by the sea. I would not complain, even if I had to move there with three other people. Um, so, uh, so you need a big house to then contrast with that to really bring, to really bring home to the audience what these women are losing, that it's not about poverty, it's about comparative poverty. So, um, so I allow them to do that. I think it's, I think it's absolutely fine. Um, and, uh, yeah, going back to Pride and Prejudice, the 1995 one is my absolute favorite adaptation. I think it's just so beautiful. Um, and I think that they really, really represent the sexual undertones of the scene really well. So inevitably, they're going to make it more about romance because I, 
how are you going to translate the concept of society as landscape into an adaptation? I have, I, I, I would love to try one day, but I have no idea how you could do that. So, you know, naturally the romance ends up being center stage, but they do it really well, you know, in, um, uh, in the, uh, 1995, there's the wet t-shirt scene. So sexual undertones, very, very clear. Uh, and then in the 2005 Kira Knightley one, I, my favorite bit is when she comes out of the carriage and she takes one look at Pemberley and she just goes, <laughs> she just has this face that just says, Oh, come on. Are you serious? This is what I said no to. And it's, you know, she just can't believe how beautiful it is. And again, you know, she goes through a gallery um filled with naked statues she sees a statue of Darcy and her and the housekeeper asks her don't you think he's handsome so again this is this is not clearly not just about the house this is about the man as well and and how she feels towards the man um but yeah I just think um I think the details in some of these scenes are really good I was literally just reading yesterday about how in the 2005 uh Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice adaptation um when Lizzie is uh at Pemberley and she's about to meet Georgina for the first time so Darcy's sister Georgina is playing at the piano the same song that was playing when Elizabeth is getting home at Longbourn at the beginning of the movie and he says that this was on purpose because it's basically indicating that Liz Lizzie is going to feel at home there as well and I just think that's such a beautiful subtle way of doing it indicating yes Lizzie is at home in Pemberley she she's arriving home basically so yeah I I love the adaptations and I think the way that they represent this kind of emotional connection um to the houses is is really really well done particularly in the Pride and Prejudice ones Absolutely. No, I completely agree. I love the adaptations and anyone, including Chris here, <laughs> he hasn't watched the classics and the newer adaptations. I very much recommend them. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the 2005 one gets a bad rap, but that's what got me into Jane Austen. So I'll always love it. And the 1995 one is, is, is perfect. I just, there's nothing I would change. It's <laughs> It's gorgeous. And the 2005 one, that was the one I kind of grew up with as well. So as you say, yeah. bad rap, but I have, you know, I have a fondness for that as well, because I, I saw that many, many years before I saw the 1995 one. Same. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, thank you so much, Rita, for joining us. It's been lovely to talk all things Jane Austen and, and her women and property with you today. Um, could you remind our listeners of the title of your book and where they can get it? We'll also see if we can pop it in our um, online bookshop as well. Yes. Uh, so my book is called Women and Property Ownership in Jane Austen. It's published by Peter Lang. So you can get that on their website or you can also get it on Amazon. And you have um, a YouTube channel, don't you, as well? And um, you're on social media? Yes. Uh, so I can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram uh, and on YouTube as well. So I have my own YouTube channel uh, where I've actually just started a new series Um called Bite Size uh, Jane Austen. And I basically have very short videos where I talk about like one aspect uh, from my book. So in a very quick, uh, very hopefully engaging way. So yeah, go check out my YouTube channel too. Amazing. And Chris, have we convinced you to read Pride and Prejudice yet? Is it next on your list? Uh, yeah. How many dragons are in uh, Pride and Prejudice? <laughs> 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 or, or, or Death's Dog. 
There is one in Pembley. It's just very well hidden. So you have to <laughs> wait until the very end and pay close attention. But I promise you it's there. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Rita, for joining us. We've, um, we've loved having you on History Hack. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.